0: Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. Today I interviewed Nathaniel Raymond, uh, who is at Yale and is studying global affairs there and and lecturing and teaching about global affairs. Uh, And this was a really interesting podcast for me because I grew up in a family that was always talking about politics and my grandfather was a journalist um, along with my great-granduncle, both pretty famous within D.C. talking about politics. So like politics... And talking about politics, particularly geopolitics, runs in my blood. Um, and i kind of given it up for a long time. I studied it in university, but then I've given it up. Uh, and this episode with Nathaniel is kind of coming back to it because now I'm starting to see this, this, this intersection between technology and global affairs, um, particularly this strike that happened a few months ago where the Israeli army... Um, was cyber attacked and then chose to cross the line from online into, uh, physical space and attack a physical, uh, Hamas target. Um, and this is really important because now, uh, that is a precedent and it is a precedent that will probably be repeated over and over and over again. And Nathaniel is the perfect person to talk to. The audio isn't the best on this interview. Um, but I hope the content is, uh, that's what I'm aiming for, and I hope that I'm going to set the expectation here that uh, my content isn't the type of content that needs to be wrapped in a little pretty little bouquet for you to consume. Um, if that's what you need in order to get the information that you need, uh, there are plenty of other places to find that. Uh, my, the, my expertise is getting the quality of the conversation and the quality of the wisdom and the quality of the uh, information out to my listeners, so that's the most important thing I'm aiming for. Um, and, uh, this episode was really, really good. Um, and I hope that you find a lot of value in it, particularly if you're interested in global politics and the way that global politics interacts with technology. Uh, Nathaniel has a lot to say about this. Uh, so hope you find it interesting. If you do, please find us on iTunes by searching for crazy wisdom and hitting subscribe. Uh, and if you do find the content to be of high value, please, uh, please leave us a review. Hope you have a great day. Thanks. Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. Uh, my guest here is Nathaniel Raymond. He is a lecturer in global affairs at the Jackson Institute at Yale University. Uh, really excited to have you on and talk about your life's work and your what you do lecturing and everything in between. Uh, so, welcome to the show.
1: Uh, good to be here. Life's work makes it seem like this is my obituary, but uh.
0: <laughs> that was not the intent. But uh, but uh, but we can go there too. Uh, Um, so, uh, yeah, so you're into global affairs and for my listeners who might not understand what that term means, uh, I mean, it's pretty broad term, but what, what, what is it and, uh, how, what got you involved with it? Um, well,
1: the, the, uh, I could give you the canned answer, but the, (laughs) the real answer is I was, um, uh, here in New Haven while I was working at, uh, the Harvard School of Public Health and the Harvard Humanitarian Initiative. And though I was living in New Haven, I'd never been in the Yale building. And I ran into my neighbor across the street while walking our dogs. And uh, he took my email in case uh, um, we ever needed to move our cars in a snowstorm. And then I get a call from a friend of his um, a couple hours later, which says, uh, you want to come on over to Yale? And uh, Um, That was the Jackson Institute, and that's how I got into the Jackson Institute for Global Affairs. They found out I was in New Haven. Um, They knew me for my work um, on uh, data responsibility and, uh, most notably, on uh, satellite imagery analysis um, related to mass atrocity and war crimes that I was doing at Harvard. And um, they were literally two blocks away from my house, and so I said, I love the commute. Um, Let's do it. There was a little more to it than that, but um, it happened at the dog park. And uh, when I realized it took me three minutes to walk there, it was a no-brainer.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's almost as good as my commute, which is uh, zero seconds. Uh, right. uh, yeah. <laughs> is it
1: faster with or without your shoes on? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly. Um, so... So you were and can you tell more pe- people more about this work you've done with global surveillance and how to um, use technology in order to enable transparency in the global system?
1: Um, well, that's a, a a very ambitious way to put it. Um, it. My work with satellites came out of necessity. Um, back in uh, 2009, I was uh, reopening a case. Uh, One of the earliest cases I ever worked on um, related to uh, my first mass grave, which was the Dostoele Massacre in northern Afghanistan, which happened purportedly in November of 2001. Um, And a very long story, but um, basically uh, Physicians for Human Rights, where I was working on my second go around 2009, had been responsible for the United Nations High Commission for Human Rights for the initial investigation on that grave. And our forensic staff had been monitoring that grave, um, including on the ground visits for the UN Assistance Mission in Afghanistan for the human rights section. And uh, a couple years before uh, Jim Risen uh, really blew the case open again in 2009, um, we knew that the grave had been tampered with. And so we reached out to Lars Bromley at the American Association for the Advancement of Science and um, they had a satellite uh, imaging and human rights program. And we basically asked Lars and the team at AAAS if they could find any before or after images of the grave site. And they ended up um, finding um, two shots, which were um, you know, really needles in a haystack and needles. Um, that showed a backhoe and a Kamaz, which is a type of Russian military vehicle, um, at the site, and digging two trenches out. One area we we knew was definitely um, uh, contained recent, relatively recent human remains. The second one um, we did not know about until we saw uh, whoever that was on the ground removing. Um, what appears to be a large um, trench um, from the site. And it was that moment that for me um, began to, uh, and you gotta remember 10 years ago in terms of satellite imagery is, is like a millennia. Um, back then, everything was much more expensive and harder to get than now. Um, there was, uh, it was before the dawn of the microsatellite, like Planet Labs, the Dove, um, which is the size of a bread box, a U.S. commercial satellite subsidized by the U.S. intelligence community is, to give your listeners a sense, as big as a school bus if you put it on its nose um, mm-hmm. compared to some microsatellites that are either, in the case of the Dove, a bread box, if anyone has bread boxes anymore, or in the case of, of uh, the Skybox Constellation, the size of a dorm room or refrigerator. Um, so, you know, at that point it was really the dawn of thinking about how remote sensing could be used for humanitarian human rights applications and since that time things have exploded in small part uh, to the work we ended up doing at harvard starting in december of 2010 when i was approached by uh, george clooney um, who wanted a concept of operations to monitor the separation of South Sudan from Sudan and I had written five years before that a memo at the request of engineers at Google when um, I was coming out of Katrina um, working for Oxfam America back in 2005. Um, we had a population in Biloxi, Mississippi, primarily African-American population literally on the wrong side of the tracks. <laughs> the train tracks divides. The, the, the city of Biloxi, and on one side on Division Street, it could not be more poetic. On the wrong side of Division Street, the Division Street Baptist Church neighborhood, you had an African American population that, after um, Katrina hit Biloxi, was not getting aid, and I began to observe anecdotally that the lack of cell phone access, of that population had, you know, it's easy to say, oh, well, it was it was racial disparity, and that was obviously part of it, but it was the more um, uh, subtle racial disparity of what I would call digital invisibility, and so it was the memo I wrote for Google five years before I got the call from George Clooney's people, that became the basis for um, Satellite Sentinel that we we built with George Clooney and other partners, including Lars Bromley, um, the United Nations, Google, the Enough Project, Digital Globe provided the satellite imagery. And it was really that moment from Clooney where we suddenly became the single largest civil society um, remote sensing effort in human history. Um, we, we consumed um, more imagery in one week, in a certain case, than the entire civilian human rights and humanitarian community had consumed in the bare part of a decade. Mm. Um, so it was, it was a gigantic undertaking. And you know at that point, we thought it was about the, the imagery was the hard part. I, imagery is easier than the non-imagery data. And what we were really pioneering is the mosaic effect fusion of imagery data and non-imagery data Not to simply look retrospectively, but to begin to proactively task satellites to areas where we think something is going to happen. So it's one thing to look retrospectively, but what we were beginning to do at that point is to think could we get a step ahead of an alleged perpetrator of mass atrocities and try to catch a trick by positioning the bird where we think that they were going to um, commit an alleged crime? Mm. And that's what we started to do. And unfortunately, um, hmm. we had a lot to take pictures so. of.
0: And so what has happened since then in terms of being able to do that? Is that something that you guys can now do? Is it, uh, uh, where are the hotspots in the globe right now where you're kind of um, monitoring or, or looking for this stuff?
1: Well, I'm, I'm out of the business. Um, I am just a, uh, a, a, <laughs> a humble and homely academic now. But um, uh, for the humanitarian field, Um, I'll give you a concrete example. Um, My colleagues and I at the Signal Program and Human Security Technology at the Harvard Humanitarian Initiative, we uh, began in 2016 to really do a mainstreaming project with the World Food Program, which is one of the largest, probably the largest 50,000 personnel strong humanitarian agency, um, biggest in the world. And we began to really integrate this type of um, both retrospective and proactive tasking into their decision support tools for detecting um, basically where people um, need food assistance. And uh, it it was very exciting because um, in places like Borno State in Nigeria, um, places like um, Syria, Aleppo, um, places like Mosul in Iraq, south sudan suddenly we were able to take the robust ground data from the world food program and other types of lower resolution data that you get from nasa satellites like the landsat constellation etc and what was really happening with world food program is we weren't developing something that was technically new at all what we were doing is beginning to um, play the orchestra, so to speak, rather mm-hmm. than just doing a trombone solo. We were beginning to t- figure out the management science of how we take all that data in the World Food Program context to give you the best common operational picture possible. And, and now, you know, um, for organizations in the humanitarian side, satellite imagery was scary as hell. Um, you know, they thought they'd be accused of spying, They thought it would be too expensive. They thought they couldn't technically handle it. And it was really those cultural barriers that were, um, not that the technical barriers are small, but those cultural barriers, I think, absorption. Now we're at a point where it's a standard part of the toolkit. You -hmm. look at any event, um, large and small crisis event, and you've got big organizations, small organizations, governments, non-governmental organizations, companies, news outlets, it's just a part of storytelling now, and um, I I think we've gotten past what I would call the age of the bright, shiny picture, Mm. um, where uh, we're beyond the pixels now, and it's more um, about the weather report, (laughs) it's Mm. gotten more normal, it's like a weather report in terms of what it can see, rather than these sort of tableaus of, you know, big pixels. Um that age is, is beginning to decline. The wowie zowie factor thankfully is going away. And we're now saying, okay, what well, what's the actionable here? And and thank God.
0: And that's very interesting. I feel like you're the perfect person to ask this question too, but what is the as we are in two thousand nineteen, what is technology's impact on our ability as um human beings to find transparency or to w- what is the role of technology in problem solving some of our largest problems that we're facing as humans today
1: um i right now the age we're in i think we're at the dawn of the age of trying to figure out the problems that we made by swallowing the spider to catch the fly. Um, my, my book coming out in November is called The World Disrupted, Countering Digital Authoritarianism and Restoring American Leadership in the Information Age. And we've basically, we basically, we've missed in, in terms of US policy. Um, we've missed a, approximately better part of a decade to 15 years. And in phase one, um, we thought that the theory of change that applied to how we we viewed information as a liberating force Mm -hmm. in in the Cold War. You know, thinking back to Glasnost and Perestroika, that, you know, we we just get them, Lou Reed and the Velvet Underground in Czechoslovakia, jeans in Moscow, and they get to watch E.T., and somehow democracy is going to take hold was sort of the theory of change. And so we applied that in the early phase of, um, of the digital revolution, believing that it was a movable feast of one theory of change in old modalities to these new modalities. Well, in, in fact, you know, the Obama administration, um, Hillary Clinton, et cetera, were pushing this idea of internet in a suitcase that Facebook and Google going into Tahrir Square um, were gonna free the world. And uh, the reality is that it has um, actually emboldened um, enemies of the United States and more importantly, enemies of democratic norms uh, around the world. I just Mm -hmm. read today and knocked my socks off this study in uh, Boston Review, which your your listeners should check out, about how um, financial technologies and mobile fintech in Kenya... Are driving highly vulnerable populations into crushing debt.
2: Mm-hmm. and
1: one of one of the big sacred cows of social entrepreneurship was the idea that if you just make people who are, quote, unbanked, banked, that you are fundamentally going to alleviate poverty, that tech itself, as Morozov would say in his critique of solutionism, that if we just provided solutions, these these technical modalities could overcome vast, complicated social forces. Well, in fact, not only could they not overcome them, um, they could mutate them. And so we thought we were building the world of tomorrow, Mm. but in fact, we were building Jurassic Park. Mm. So I think the next five to 10 years of US policy, if we can get beyond Trump, is really going to be about um, not only not reversing the damage. You know, as I say in my book, if anyone thinks it's about fixing and going back to normal, then you haven't been paying attention. We're not going back. We have to go forward to something new. And, and the big problem at the heart of this is that everything we had from the analog era about privacy and about thinking about data is entirely anachronistic because, and this is really the heart of my book, is that we built a world in the aftermath of World War II that was about PII, protecting personal identifiable information. But the the technologies we've made now with ICTs, not just social media, not just mobile phones, but the aggregate um, uh, buffet of technologies together um, has created um, a, a world that runs not on PII alone, but on DII and ABI. Those are things that I invented the terms for, which, <laughs> so that shows how not mainstream we are on these concepts, which is demographically identifiable information, action-based information, and to put it simply, group data. Mm. If you look at the the European GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation of the EU, the strongest in the world, la-di-da, it actually doesn't talk about group data. It only regulates the data of individuals. And so, you know, that I get ticked off all the time when people talk to me about AI ethics. And I've spoken at all these AI ethics um, events, and we're not ready to talk about AI ethics mm-hmm. because it, I'm not worried about AI yet um, because we haven't figured out what the name is for the fuel in the tank of AI engines. And it can, AI can imagine communities mathematically that don't even know their communities. So how does, how does consent, how does the issue of, of dignity, um, justice that comes from Nuremberg, Helsinki Declaration, Belmont Report and the Common Rule, how do any of those things apply when you don't even know if you are conceived of as part of a, a group that could be entirely imaginary, but affect your life in the mind of a computer? we don't need to hold the individual's data anymore to affect the individual. We need to hold the data of a community that they may or may not know they're a part of. And that's the problem. So you look at Cambridge Analytica, I was watching the Netflix great hack movie, amazing cinematography, thrilling, pulse pounding, but fundamentally misses the point. Um, The core parts of what Cambridge Analytica did may not in any court of law technically be illegal Mm -hmm. they made the crowd legible by beginning to mosaic together the genome of the action-based and demographic-based psycho-informatic information of a crowd some of which was known some of which was imagined okay what statute do you prosecute them under? Mm -hmm. we don't have one yet (laughs) and so you know, that's, that's my issue here is that the digital authoritarians, Russia and China have become masters of a new battlefield that we don't as the United States even acknowledge, Mm. which is social digital terrain. They have mastered it because for them, it's just putting electricity into the basic crowd control that they were doing analog since, you know, um, Stalin smoked cigars.
0: Super interesting. And, uh, Group rights, I've never heard it framed that way before, which is essentially like, uh, I am a part of a group, whether I know it or not. And that group is now uh, very easy to manipulate based on all of the data that I put out there and all the connections that I have with my social network, essentially, right?
1: Mm-hmm. And I would think of it as a double door. When we, can imagine, when we can imagine the group, we swing the door one way, we can see them. We can, we can begin to target them. And when we swing it the other way, we can begin to speak to them. We can begin to uh, manipulate them. Um, so th- there's this line, and that's why I start my book with, is that Don DeLillo, one of the greats you know, up there with Pynchon of postmodern literature, he had this you know apocalyptic sounding line from Mao II, where he says, the future belongs to crowds, and I read that when I was in college and I was like, wow, that sounds deep. I'll repeat it at a party and, and, and sound smart, and now that I think about it, I don't believe it at all. The future doesn't belong to crowds because the present now belongs to those with the computing power to detect, predict, influence, <laughs> and target crowds. It, it, and this is a profound thing to, to think about is that if we look at all of our human rights and legal norms from the Enlightenment to now, they're basically about consent of the governed. And the idea, if we read the Declaration of Independence is that you know to throw, to throw off the, uh, the bounds of tyranny and, and have a people determine their own form of governance. Okay. Well, that fundamentally relies on, on the self-determinative agency of crowds. Mm. Well, look at Hong Kong right now. I mean, for me, that was the moment where the, the book came together, is to see them in the face masks with the laser pointers. Um, and, you know, it looks straight out of Akira <laughs> in, in Japan animation. you look at it and you realize this is a crowd that is trying to make itself illegible to those in power.
2: Mm-hmm. They're
1: trying to disappear the individual in order to protect the power of the crowd, mm-hmm. to engage in self-determinative agency. And that is, that is unbelievably um, pivotal in human history, is that suddenly the crowds are having to contend with the fact that the crowd is no longer opaque. And mm-hmm. that back to, to the French Revolution, back to everything a crowd that has done that is good and bad in this world from year zero with the Khmer Rouge bad side and the French Revolution. We can debate that all the way to the Boston Tea Party. Would that be possible if power could make them granularly legible? Well, now they can. And they can with the very things that we said were gonna emancipate us from those forces. Uh, uh, uh. (laughs) Uh-uh-uh. We have put them on steroids.
0: So you mentioned a, uh, an author. I can't remember whether you mentioned the book. Yevgeny, the, the Russian guy's sound, sounding name who wrote, I, I remember I've read the book. There was, a, uh, do you know what I'm talking about? Morozov. Yeah, Morozov.
1: Morozov. to fix everything click here.
0: Yeah. Um, can you explain to my listeners a little bit more because it sounds like you're drawing a lot from that as well. Can you explain more about how that fits in? That's, he, you said something about like the, the philosophy that he has for uh, uh, solutionism. That's what it was. Yeah, so,
1: so you have his concept of solutionism, and then Shoshana Zuboff this year with surveillance capitalism uses the term instrumentarianism, um, it, and I could be saying that wrong, but the if you think of Morozov and Zuboff as sort of the two big foundational theorists of this time, you've got on Morozov's side, he's saying that the the ethos that comes from Silicon Valley that's now been encoded into our tech and into our governance is this idea that every problem has a technological solution. We just haven't found it yet. Hmm. (laughs) And and, and so then you go forward to Zuboff, and she's taking really Morozov's critique further, saying that not only is it about a solution to a problem, but that the very data in the, of individuals and thus individuals themselves. Our instruments are instruments are valued in terms of how they affect what she calls the hive um, in terms of their instrumental nature to the collective whole. And that's a critique of folks like Sandy Pentland from MIT who see this, this type of interconnectivity and in the death of the individual in the individual privacy as not the Borg from Star Trek Next Generation, but as a type of emancipation for the way in which we can help people. Mm. And then I'm coming in sort of beyond that, saying, that's great. We can debate this till the cows come home, but what you all have missed is that you're still localized in the individual, and individual data and individual rights is somehow being... Um, what we're trying to defend now as if as if we haven't lost that castle in chess Well, we have and so the question is now we've got to, to be the day after tomorrow here in our mindset and realize the 20th century analogs of privacy and of the conception of individual data sanctity is somehow what we're playing for may not be Actually, technically achievable, and so what do we do with our entire Western liberal um, human rights view um, encoded in law when it technically may have gotten hotwired? And so it comes to the question of: Do groups have inalienable rights? That may be the fundamental question of the 21st century and the 22nd is are we at the dawn of a new generation of human rights that is about the group or are we at the end of the viability of human rights as a concept itself? And whoa, man, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, and that, but that's, that's where we are. And mm-hmm. I think of my colleague down the hall and across the street here at Yale, Samuel Moyne, um, in his writing, he made it makes a really good point that I, I want us to think about. He says that, in the 19th century, um, rights came about in terms of property and in terms of labor. And, and that makes sense, looking at the American Civil War, et cetera, that generation of rights was about the value of labor and the value of people engaged in labor. And we go to the, the 20th century and it begins to be about this idea of the inalienable individual. And I've been thinking about Moyne's sort of timelines epochs of rights. And and so what I'm saying in the book is really the 21st century, well, then the third generation is a question of groups and groups that may not know they are in those groups.
0: And so there's essentially an illusion of individuality that most of us have, um, that is founded in this, uh, property rights and, uh, uh, liberal, human rights essentially. And this, it makes sense because even if I look into my own body uh, and think about all the millions of cells interacting um, in my body, it's like, even if I look in there, I can, I don't really see an individual and then going out into the ideas and all the inputs that I have into my head from other people. It's like, you know, I follow these people on Twitter and so I'm having this conversation with you. I read this book that you, you've also read. So these ideas are affecting my life as well. And I think it's also an important point to notice that what you say about um, have, have we ended this human rights era because there are two governments, Russia and China, which don't share those same human rights values um, and are growing in power. I, wouldn't, I, I think the, the case that they are um, going to be for sure stronger than the United States is probably not as solid as a lot of people say, um, but it, there is something to be said about we are now entering a more multipolar world. Would you agree?
1: Yeah, and I and I would say here's the scary thing about Russia and China. They don't need to be stronger than us. Uh, yeah. that, 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 that's the fundamental, one it's of the fundamental trick. ideas I attack in the book is that our blindness to their threat is that we are still viewing this through a Cold War lens that in a nuclear struggle, that the end state is one triumphs over the other. Mm. What they what what they what they're doing is they're attempting to create a settled situation where it is a tripolar world. And you need to stop thinking about Russia and China and the
2: sub
1: state clients of digital authoritarianism as um uh just independent actors they're increasingly becoming what was an ad hoc alliance they're becoming increasingly a formalized alliance and there's a moment that visually stands out for me uh, when the allies were at normandy this past summer for the um uh 75th anniversary of the d-day invasion um Russia, part of the alliance, was not there. They were meeting with Xi Jinping, Putin, and <laughs> um, the premier of China were in St. Petersburg. If that wasn't a message, I don't know what is. And, and so at the moment that the, the Western alliance was celebrating the triumph over fascism, China and Russia were saying, we're having our own meeting, sorry, out of office reply. And, and for me, that's the critical point that we don't seem to understand is we think, well, as long as we maintain uh, some vestige of traditional American hegemony, we're doing fine. Well, what does the world look like where it is in a type of stasis of equal counterpoise between the United States and a digital authoritarian bloc that is, is affecting our elections, is affecting the elections of other, quote, free states, and is fundamentally infiltrating. Our physical civil digital space we're putting a gun to their head in Russian cyber and electrical and medical infrastructure they're putting a gun to ours and so suddenly we are arming up not with nuclear weapons but in the actual civilian space, the, the un um, at governed civil digital space of our physical. Infrastructure by which we live our daily lives. This is not an ICBM silo. It's your grandma's nursing home. That's what it is. Mm. And so, when we think that somehow, well, we still got the upper hand, the problem is they're not playing for all the chips. They're playing for enough mm. to change the way the poker game is played. Mm. And they may have already done that in a way. Well, we're concerned about maintaining dominance. We may have missed the entire trick,,
0: so this brings up the question you, you mentioned governance and how we're, our, our, our view has to shift of governments and there 's this space that is ungoverned. Uh, can the internet be governed? I guess it can because in china it 's being governed. Um, but what are your thoughts on the governability of the internet
1: well you 're asking the essential question here is that can the internet be governed in um Conflict
2: mm.
1: with, with in a where everything is connected. When the other thing it's connected to is fundamentally um, uh, digital fascism, um, can that system uh, remain um, integrated? I don't know the answer. Um, I do know it's not looking so hot. Mm. In, in the, in the so the question is: Are we to a moment of a lesser of two evils? Accepting a free and unfree bifurcated internet, or attempting to compromise our values um, by trying to govern the ungovernable, which is worse?
0: Mm. Interesting. Um, I don't know. And uh, you talk about two webs. Can you talk more about that? I, I'd really. It seems like you'd have special insight into uh, uh, what I call the like divided web. I'm sure other people have thought about it before. But what is China doing in terms of its surveillance technology, and it's uh, and it's it's exporting that, correct? Yeah,
1: it's exporting it to Africa. We have clear evidence that it's exporting it to um, South Asia, and so we're at a moment where we've thought a lot in terms of the divided web. Well, it's it's really the bricks and mortar of the web in lesser developed countries is being exported. Mm-hmm as we're seeing now with Huawei in the United States um, is being exported from a digital authoritarianism. And in many cases, it's not just China, look at Kaspersky labs, et cetera, in the case of of Russia. So we're looking at um, what happens when in the cold war, we were concerned about the export of ideology. Now we're actually talking about an ideology that is encoded in a hardware that exists um, throughout the world, um, that's a new one. Mm. And mm. and so the fact is, is that for all intents and purposes, and you can look at the excellent Institute for Quantitative Social Science study at Harvard on the use of the Chinese um, censorship, quote unquote censorship capabilities, are really about trying to prevent real world meetups like Hong Kong of online, activists. Mm. And so it's not about censoring words, it's about preventing a uh, connection in the real world.
0: And I remember reading a book.
1: That's terrifying.
0: Yeah. And I remember reading a book about that in China, this is like 10, 15 years ago, uh, and about how that's the way that China would basically cut off Protests within mainland China, which they would identify the leaders of the protests, cut them off, and then essentially uh, the, the 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 protests themselves would die out because they just targeted the leaders. And then the and and has that increased or is is that still true? Oh
1: well, all anecdotal evidence from Hong Kong would suggest yes. And the the issue is is that they're using dumbbar numbers.
2: They're mm.
1: trying to model and figure out. Um, connections in groups of six groups of 12 etc and and model out those radial effects so it, when I talk about um, making the crowd legible it's not that they're not paying attention to individuals it's that the individuals help them see the crowd and the crowd helps them see the individuals and so you have to understand that it's constantly this um, back and forth forever <laughs> of this co-option of the individual to the crowd and the crowd to the individual in the state of uh, surveillance. That's about preventing the real world manifestation of online social digital terrain affecting actual physical political.
0: Uh, So I think that's a really important point. And now uh, it's important to recognize that the online world and the offline world are not as clearly cut as most people think, for example, in Israel uh, recently, Israeli army recently made an attack against a Hamas target um, in Palestine that was doing a cyber attack on them. So they responded by shooting a missile at their supposed location. And so we've got this connection between online and offline worlds now, not as starkly clear. Can we? Can you talk more about how that's showing up?
1: Well, th- there's that's a really great question and a great example there that i wish we were talking about more because um that may be as my colleague jonathan reiber pointed out a couple weeks ago uh and jonathan was formerly um a uh a special advisor secretary of defense on uh on cyber policy uh jonathan pointed out that this may be the first kinetic attack in response to a cyber operation known in human history mm. um and, and so the, the, they're going to be teaching this at the, the Naval War College, and <laughs> the Army War College, um, for, for a long time. Um, and technically, in terms of what we know about uh, interpreting the laws of war through the Talon Manual, which is our, our, currently our only resource, it's not international law, but it's an interpretive guide to international law for cyber operations, they technically may have, uh, the Israelis uh, likely acted legally within their sovereign right. And they, they didn't just respond with the missile strike. They also they were uh, saw the cyber operation, responded with the cyber operation mm. against the cyber actor, and then engaged in a kinetic strike. Um, so at this point, it doesn't look like they technically um, violated the laws of war as we know it. Okay, but that, that's actually not the issue here. The mm-hmm. issue is that we don't have clarity about how um, the Geneva Convention um, applies and LOAC, uh, the laws of armed conflict, um, apply um, to not just cyber as cyber, which I don't think is actually helpful. Um, back to your point about the online and offline, is we need to end the bifurcation. Um, and we say cyber war now, guys, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> um, war. cyber war, is war.
0: Yep. Mm.
1: And, and so the, the, the problem is, is that we have put it in this sort of boutique ghetto of, um, you know, like it's, it's less than it is. Um, or it's more than it's somehow we, we've been blinded by this difference. Um, and what's the consequence of our blindness, that, that that our superimposed blindness from seeing it as somehow, it's different. It's not Coke, it's new Coke. Mm. It's not Pepsi, it's clear Pepsi, <laughs> okay? Well, at some point we get to the point where soda is soda. Um, and and the, the issue is, okay, um, how do we regulate that? Um, <laughs> mm. And how do we prevent the can from exploding here and injuring the consumer? Um, Well, the the issue is we haven't figured that out. And we haven't figured that out for a very important reason is that right now, um, states don't want to have new restrictions, um, not just on the side of Russia and China, but on the side of the United States. Um, No one um, in a position of power is screaming for there to be sudden Geneva applicability, say from fourth Geneva, from the amended protocols to fourth Geneva, which talks about blowing up dams and other infrastructure and could be interpreted as applying here. Well, no one wants that commentary written in stone because right now in the wild West, Mm. everyone gets the advantage of being in a post-normative extra legal environment. Um, And the permissiveness it allows state and non-state actors and deniability and lack of attribution. Well, To quote Frederick Douglass, power concedes nothing without a demand. And to date, civilians have either not been educated um, enough um, or been activated enough to say back to the power of crowds, um, we need governance in terms of um, the laws of war and also in terms of domestic civil political rights um, for what is and is not um allowed and so i I make this point in the book and i think this is something that's really been missing from the discourse is that let's flash back in time to 2010 2009 we'll go back a decade um at that point the united states was innovating um a new way of war fighting and uh, uh uh, a colleague of mine calls it everywhere war, uh, Gregory. Gregory, in his article in, um, uh, I believe, uh, what journal was it in? It was some geographic journal. Gregory makes the great point that the United States in its counterterrorism efforts um, basically created an everywhere war. And that mm-hmm. both was enabled by technology and encouraged technology um, to support a certain type of warfighting. And, and what was that warfighting? Well, it involved some new things. Drones. It involved signals reconnaissance, global batch collection signals reconnaissance from the NSA. It involved uh, really back to ABI. So when I say ABI, the phrase action-based information is what I use. But the Marines in Fallujah, they were using action-based intelligence. And it was during, and that was in '04. You, you have action-based intelligence and action-based targeting of individuals as part of counterterrorism, anywhere in the world, in a moment's notice, globally, beyond borders, um, extra and post-normative um, targeting in terms of the sovereign boundaries of states. That was, that was new. Mm. <laughs> and, and so suddenly you have tech that we're using right now to communicate that is a direct result of the everywhere war um, in U.S. counterterrorism. But the everywhere war wasn't about an invasion technology alone. If you look at the Bush administration in terms of what they did in the Geneva Conventions with the interrogation program, the preemptive invasion of Iraq without um, full authorization of the United Nations. Um, you have um, th- that movement and NSA surveillance. So you have that entire technological movement was not just because of the technology. It also was accentuating and encouraging what I would call post-normative application of force. Mm-hmm. And where the the types of state-to-state limitations on force Suddenly, we were restrictive to everywhere war targeting modality.
2: Mm.
1: And so, while we were engaged in everywhere war, we were also engaged in shredding the normative framework of states. And you get to the Obama administration. And the Obama administration continued some, ended some of those policies, but continued others targeted drone strikes, t- um, tailored access operations from the NSA, et cetera. So, that continues in part. Also, you have a failure in the Obama administration in terms of the red line in Syria to uphold analog consequences for analog crimes. Mm. And so it's that suddenly the United States is pulling back on the trigger in terms of creating a type of agreed reciprocity. And Sanger makes this point very well in his book, The Perfect Weapon. We're at a moment now where we've not agreed, what are the consequences in terms of reciprocal, sometimes kinetic, sometimes cyber, responses for breaching norms that don't exist yet? And, and, and so look at the 2016 election. Let's say McConnell was all in. Hmm. <laughs> the statement went out from Obama prior to the election. The Republicans were standing next to him. Let's say everything functioned that way (laughs) Mm. okay what um what does the u.s proportionate response look like if we all think back to that episode it was in the first couple episodes of the first season of the west wing where bartlett is in the Mm. sit room and is like i'm tired of a proportionate response what does (laughs) that even mean (laughs) and well that's where we are now okay what is a proportionate response what Was 2016 an act of war? Mm. If it was, then, then, then what does that mean? In the Talon Manual, they say, well, um, explore, you know, like you're reading an Ikea manual. Okay, if that doesn't work, try using screw C. <laughs> mm. um, you know, so Talon says um, that the, the law encourages, their interpretation of the law encourages a series of escalating um, uh, sanctions. Um, that's non-cyber to punish cyber. Okay, so this is the big This is the big question. In terms of China, um, what we're seeing now, in terms of reported in the past 24, 36 hours on China misinformation operations against the United States and elsewhere related to Hong Kong, um, Chinese hacking in case of um, the Office of Personnel Management during the Obama administration, um, what, what does our response look like? Should we be pulling Chinese visas mm. for students that are studying comp sci in the United States? Is that part of it? How do we begin to encode that And this? I can't overstate how consequential this is. Mm. Um, th- this it, right, right now we have seen in the past 10 years with the, the, the initial furtive triumph of big tech and now it's come up in okay, we, we've seen the shrinking case of the disappearing nation state. Well, if the nation state is going to come back and reassert itself, if that is the, the prescription for this particular pathology, um, what's the playbook? And this is, is the critical point I want to make, is that like with the early days of nuclear weapons, the greatest danger is we miscalculate. What I'm concerned about now is that we are hurtling down the elevator shaft where we don't think the old rules apply. We don't know what new rules apply. Everyone's weaponizing civilian space. At some point, someone's going to pull the trigger and it's going to go click. Um, they may already have. Um, okay, what does disproportionate response look like? in a world that no longer has agreement on proportionality. That should keep everybody up at night. I know it keeps me up.
0: Well, and and so let's go into the thought experiment a little bit, because it seems that uh, before this conversation, my impression of a next worldwide conflict would be uh, autonomous drones, uh, but mostly still militarily fought, and it's still conventional, because I think everybody's still afraid of using nuclear weapons. But now you're en- entering a new type of thought, which is that the whole thing is now um, elevated to this new level. What does a uh, what does the next conflict look like in terms of uh, um, in terms of in technology, weaponized military technology, but also weaponized uh, digital technology, particularly with that digital technology.
1: So whenever ever I'm at conferences about these issues, somebody who's watched Terminator 2 one too many times, it always happens. Like you can set your watch by it. There's someone says, well, I'm really concerned about Skynet. <laughs> and I'm the guy at the back of the room going, oh, no. <laughs> I'm not worried about Skynet. Right now, the issue is we're moving at the speed of stupid. <laughs> okay. it's You know, I constantly talk about that Far Side cartoon where... Um, uh, it talks about the, the, the jur- Jurassic period, the Triassic, and then you have the, the clumsy, the awkward age, mm. right? <laughs> and you, these gawky dinosaurs tripping over sticks and stuff, and <laughs> the pterodactyl flying off to the side with the fuck teeth. Um, that's where we are now. I'm not worried about Skynet. I'm not worried about war games. I'm worried about a series of layered and escalating miscalculations, where we think that the, the problem is technological supremacy. Actually, you know what it is? It's, it's normative coherence, right? You can, have, um, you can have the most advanced sports car, you can have the Lamborghini of your dreams, you can have the Tesla, it's only as good as the yellow and white lines on the road, and people know what a stop sign means, right? And what a speed limit means. And so the, my concern is this, is that, oh, what if we have all those incredible sports cars going towards each other? Well, there's going to be a multiple car pileup if no one knows if the light is green or red. <laughs> and so my concern is that it doesn't matter whether we're driving a Yugo, we're driving a Camry, or we're driving a DeLorean, um, the, the, the issue is um, a car accident is a car accident. And especially when you're driving drunk without insurance and no one's wearing a seatbelt, and so the the issue now is that we are seeing um, a series of these precedents. You mentioned one in terms of Hamas and Israel, that may have been um, to to the letter. Okay. Well, the point is is that well, what letter? Um how do varying viewpoints on how that incident was handled, or Stuxnet in Iran, how do we begin to adjudicate that? Um, Now uh, now we we see this moment where these tiny precedents, most of which are classified, Hmm. are leaking out, and we're having to do this Heisenberg look through the little hole in the box here, (laughs) in terms of seeing if we can find a doctrine in this sort of sea of breadcrumbs when we can't see the whole thing? And so what does it come down to? Well, it comes down to Congress playing its oversight role. Um, Mueller was a law enforcement investigation. It was a counterintelligence investigation. It was not Kane Hamilton. Hmm. It was not the 9-11 commission. It was not the Warren Commission. Its job was not proactively advising the, the we the people its job was to determine prosecution, declination of prosecution, or national security threat. And that national security threat part is not public. Um, so we actually don't have what we needed. Mueller was never going to be able to give that, which is, okay, here's the public version of what we know so far. Here is a set of recommendations on how we make the United States safe and, and fit. Mm. or the cyber age. Mm. Um, that's what we needed. That's what we needed about five years before the 2016 election attack, and it was an attack. Mm. And so now, here we are. It's three years later. U.S. cyber policy has effectively, regardless of collusion, been co-opted by an administration that has directly benefited from the fruits of digital authoritarianism Tweeting bots created by those intelligence agents working for a digital authoritarian government. So we have lost four years where we've not only lost those years, we have been co opted by an administration that is, regardless of any collusion or coordination, beholden to the effects of their presence of a doctrine. Mm -hmm. And now we're the better part of a decade into this age, decade plus, without a doctrine without policy coordination, without a public accounting, mm. and without a clearly articulated, and I've been listening to the Democratic candidates, I don't hear anyone saying, what does our national cyber strategy look like? <laughs> we need to protect our elections. Well, great, yeah. Uh-huh, and everyone floss and brush before you go to bed. <laughs> um, we need a little more than that. And and frankly, I've been exasperated. This has been an opportunity for the Democrats to communicate in the absence of any Republican leadership on the congressional side, actually in the presence of dereliction of duty on the Republican side, to say, we are facing the challenge of our time Mm. and how we stand or fall at this moment will determine the future of human freedom in the 21st century and beyond. So it's not like anything's riding on it,
0: Skippy. Mm. (laughs) Seems like Andrew Yang would probably have the most cogent response on that, but um, yeah, I don't know. Uh,
1: well, send me the link. <laughs> uh,
0: and and you mentioned we don't have doctrines, but most certainly Russia and China have doctrines. I imagine at some point, somewhere in the State Department, they're coming up with a doctrine. It's just I imagine that the resources to that to those people are probably not very much.
1: Well, think back 2017 when Admiral Rogers was director of the NSA in his um, questioning by Senator Warren in front of the Senate Armed Services Committee. Watch that tape. Hmm. Um, and then after that, watch the Zuckerberg testimony hearing in his questioning by Senator Kennedy of Louisiana. Okay. Hmm. Um, so go back to Rogers. Um, uh, Elizabeth Warren is saying, do you have plans to respond um, to protect the 2018 election. And Mm. Rogers, to paraphrase, basically says, yes, we have plans ready to go in a moment's notice. Mm. We have not been ordered to execute them. So plans are only as good as the order. Mm. And the order has has not been given. McConnell has not brought the election security bill up. So, um, and plans are not doctrine. uh, and, and we need mm-hmm. to separate that out. George Kennan um, in the containment um, doctrine that Deliberate was in the X. long memo. Yep. yep. Um, and yeah, and then X in foreign affairs. Um, the um, that was a doctrine which became uh, a framework for planning. And he was in, ended up in policy planning, and it was in that position that containment became the Christmas tree that the ornaments of planning were hung on. Mm. Okay, now we have the opposite. If we look at Cyber Command, General Nakasone, et cetera, we clearly have plans. And recently, when another moment to put up there with the Hamas moment, is the Iranian shot down a drone. And the New York Times reported that there was a cyber reprisal instead of the missile launch. Mm. That is a critical moment. It's clear that showed plans. It also showed an incidental moment of a potential emerging doctrine. And I have to actually hand it to who in the Trump administration did that because mm. that was a sound, that was a sound moment where suddenly the cyber reprisal looks measured. And in this both strong and de-escalative at the same time mm-hmm. compared to tomahawks going into Tehran.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so that's a moment where, wow, we should be looking at that, but incidental moments of plan, that arc towards doctrine does not a grand strategy make. Mm-hmm. And at this point we have a lack of coherence, cohesion, transparency and oversight. Um, and, and, The question is Let's say Trump loses. Um, Okay, is Congress literate, regardless of party? And now this goes to Kennedy in the interrogation of Zuckerberg. That reminded me of moments when I had to go over to my grandfather's house to program the VCR. that, That there seemed to be a lack of basic technical literacy, regardless of partisan or political position, on the part of Congress. And this in itself is a national security issue prima facie, is that I don't think Congress understands what the issues are with the internet. And it is even more complicated by the fact that our commercial, our market, our legal policies are now tip of the spear national security policies. Mm. Our national security policies in the cyber age are also market legal. they are data protection, they're HIPAA policies. And that's where we are now is we haven't, and it frustrates me when we have the, the NSA surveillance debate. Well, the fact is, is this isn't just a national security issue. Um, and when we talk about issues of domestic data protection and legal rights, it's not just a civil liberties issue anymore. And it's that nexus mm-hmm. of the interdisciplinary nature of this governance. Um, that frankly eludes Congress at present in terms of its, its actual capability to grasp the, the, the mechanisms of these issues that are shaping our world. Mm. And whether you have an R, a D, an I, an undecided next to your name, that should concern you. Mm. That is not a partisan.
0: Okay, so we got to wrap up, but this has been one of the, my favorite interviews so far, and the key takeaway I'm taking away is that interdisciplinary, we need more people with interdisciplinary range, uh, which is like the exact opposite of what the our uh, society is building us for, is to be specialized uh, kind of ants, uh, but we need more people with range in order to kind of take all these different pieces and put them together do, into something.
1: It'll look interdisciplinary for a little bit, you know, and mm. in- an airplane during the days of the Wright Brothers. Um, hey, that looks like a bicycle. <laughs> it also looks like a glider. Also, it's a machine. And before we had the word for an airplane, it was a chimera, it was a combination of things. So was radiology. Well, <laughs> mm-hmm. it, it's a photograph, but it's medicine. Now, we call it an X-ray. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the fact of the matter, and this is actually a great place to end on, it goes full circle to what we were talking about at the beginning. In terms of my journey on remote sensing, it's really, you know, you start calling something by one name and you start thinking, and a very quick story here. I was staying at a coffee line in San Francisco at the Presidio with a colleague from the World Food Program who's engaged in blockchain and we're waiting for coffee and he sort of says out loud uh, this line, I think he was talking to the heavens. That's an exasperation that now sort of, this sentence hangs with me Is like the, the, you know, James Joyce, to forge in the smithy of our souls, the uncreated conscience of our race. He says out loud, huh, are we a bank now? (laughs) From the the largest food delivery organization in the world. He's saying, hey, are we a bank? Uh. And that captures the moment is that what this technology has done is it's rearranged the names for things. It's rearranged what we thought was relevant to things, what we thought was ethics, was governance, what we thought constituted or did not constitute data. We're in the midst of this great rearrangement. And it it is crucial at these moments that we have conversations where beyond politics, beyond agendas, we try to develop a common vocabulary. Mm -hmm. The challenge now is to learn to call new by its right name mm.
0: cool thank you so much and how can people find out more about uh your book about what you're doing about your writing
1: yeah i should put something on the uh the internet about the book i'll i'll talk to Yale university press about that um yeah um you can follow me on twitter um uh, natty ray 11 and um I can find out more there or go to the Jackson Institute website and you can follow me there.
0: Cool. Thank you so much. This has been a great.
1: discussion.